Today I want to talk to you um, about the one person that will mess you up more than any other. The one, the number one troublemaker in your life is the person you look at in the mirror every morning. Honestly, that is the person that will make it more difficult for you as you try to follow Jesus and love other people more than any other person in your life. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to tell them, you are your problem. Would you just tell them that? Come on, you are your problem. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Now, I mean, let me tell you something. In relationships, listen, listen, in relationships so often, we go, oh man, I don't understand. You know, this friend, they don't want to be my friend anymore and they left and I don't understand. This friend, you know, they cut me off on Facebook, you know. This friend, man, I text them all the time and all I get is bubbles, you know. And then, and then I go, get ghosted. It's like, they, I mean, what's the problem? What's the common denominator there? You, right? It is, it is. It's true. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, Romans 7. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I, want to, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Can't you just feel this? I think all of us can relate to this. In one area or another, we, we relate to what Paul is writing here. All too often, it's as if parts of us are out of control. Anybody else relate to that at all? Where, where you just have, there's a part of you that it's like, what am I doing? I, I thought I had this under control, and now it's just like, Bleh! you know, it just, it just goes. It's, it's like, and, and, and you kind of have those out-of-body experiences where you begin to do something or say something, and you're thinking to yourself, why am I doing this? Because I know what this is going to do. This is going to explode in my face. I know this person's going to take this wrong. I, I know this situation isn't going to turn out right. Why am I doing this? Why am I saying this? Hmm. This is true for most people, so much so that feeling like they're out of control, so much so that the University of Pennsylvania surveyed 2 million people, big, big research survey, 2 million people, and they asked these people to rank in order their strengths in their lives. And do you know what ended up on the very bottom? Of two million people listing their strengths in their life, self-control ended up on the very bottom of the list. One of the most famous research studies about self-control is known as the marshmallow test. Google has so many videos about this, but I love this one. Let's take a look. All of us struggle with a lack of self-control in some area of our life. And all of us need what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. We've been talking about this now. This is our 10th part, 10 weeks we've been talking about what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us. Take a look at what Paul writes in Galatians 5. You can read it with me. You probably know it by now. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, come on, read it with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and here we are, Self-control. Now, we got to admit, this characteristic, this aspect and quality is self-explanatory. It doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. In the original Greek, it's a word that means self-restraint, self-control. Self-control is controlling yourself, 
right? I mean, we can kind of understand that. It's the ability to subdue one's impulses, our emotions, our actions to achieve a long-term goal, like getting two marshmallows instead of enjoying one marshmallow now. And we all know that. I mean, we, in our culture, we kind of define it as willpower. We kind of define it as endurance with a with a goal in mind, perseverance, you know, those kinds of things. But biblical self-control goes far beyond that. We're going to see how biblical self-control is talking about relationships. In fact, all of the fruit of the Spirit, as we've learned through our series, has to do with relationships, and specifically with self-control, which, by the way, is an interesting one. All of the fruit of the Spirit we can see in God God is a part of his character is all of this, but except for self-control. He doesn't need self-control like we need self-control because there is no wrong. There is no sin. There is no evil in God. Everybody follow that? So self-control is the one fruit of the Spirit that Paul puts on this list to tell us we need this, but it's interesting that this particular fruit has to do with relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. So I want you to get this. I want you to understand that self-control has nothing to do with say, staying on a diet. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Biblical self-control has nothing to do with not saying cuss words and putting a dollar in the jar every time you do. Okay, that's not self-control according to the Bible. Self-control, biblical self-control has nothing to do with going to the gym and getting exercise every week. Okay? Or, or spending less money for Christmas. Oh, that's self-control. No, that's not biblical self-control. Since the fruit of the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, it's all about a spiritual and relational focus. You've got to get down in your outline. Hopefully you got that outline out ready to write this in, all right? There's only a couple fill-in-the-blanks today, but you want to get this one. Self-control is limiting what I do so I don't mess up my relationship with God and others. Self-control is limiting what I do so I don't mess up my relationship with God or others. Come on, read it with me. Self-control is limiting what I do so I don't mess up my relationship with God and others. So, so I want you to get this in your mind. Self-control obviously is limiting what I do, and we know that part. Limiting what I do but it's so that I don't mess up my relationships, my relationship with God, my relationship with other people. And how many of you know that sometimes when we don't limit what we do or say, you could put that in there too, sometimes when we don't limit what we do or what we say, how many of you know that it affects your relationships sometimes? In fact, it can affect them negatively big time. If we do or say things out of control, we all have experienced relationship explosions. We all have experienced times when we feel distant from God in our relationship with him because of what we have done. It has been out of control. We all have experienced distance from other people because of things we have said or have done that have been out of control and have blown up in our face and blow up the relationship. We all have experienced that. And so this fruit of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit wants to produce in us is this ability to limit what we do 
so that we don't mess up the relationships of our life. It's important. Now, the Old Testament has all kinds of examples about this. What's interesting is we kind of step into these people's lives in the Old Testament and New Testament, but in the Old Testament specifically, and it's, they're not talking about self-control. In fact, the phrase self-control is never used, but you can clearly see it. And so I wanted to bring two that have really grabbed my attention over the last several weeks. First off, in Genesis 37, and you may know this story. If not, you probably know the Broadway play for this guy. But we're introduced to Joseph, the guy who had the coat of what? Many colors, right? All right. And, and, and what's interesting about the coat of many colors is it's indicative of what was going on in his dysfunctional family. He grew up in a dysfunctional family, a blended family, and in that family, he had a father who highly favored him, so much so that he gave him a better coat than anybody else in the family got. That's where the coat of many colors comes from. In that culture, in that day, to have colorful attire was something showing that you were highly favored or highly rich. And Joseph was showing both. All his other brothers, they just got brown. I don't know, you know, whatever color they got. And they just wore brown all the time. And yet Joseph had color. And it came from his dad, who was very, very favorable towards him. Now, what do you think that would do with a bunch of brothers, half-brothers, but a bunch of brothers and one brother who gets all of dad's attention, what do you think that would create? Jealousy, right? And that's exactly what happened. It created massive jealousy. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but Joseph was a guy who had leadership aspirations, and he talked to his dad and his brothers about that, and they didn't like it either, these dreams that he had. And so he just honestly, in being naive as he was and young as he was, he made things worse. And so this highly jealous group of brothers came to a point in Genesis 37 where it says Joseph's brothers sold him to traders for 20 pieces of silver. They sold him into slavery. They were really going to kill him. So this is the best of the deal. This was option B, and this is a way better option for Joseph. They were going to kill him. And, and they were waiting to decide, what are we going to do with him? Are we going to kill him? What are we going to do? They threw him into this cistern, this pit. And, and so they were deciding, and they see these traders coming, these, and then they decide, hey, let's just sell him. Let's get some money off of this. And so they sell him as a slave to slave traders for 20 pieces of silver. And notice where the traders took him. They took him to Egypt. And then we read, when Joseph was taken to Egypt by the traders, he was purchased by a guy named Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Notice this. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was the head of the secret service for the king of Egypt. Everybody get that? He's the one that told the black escalades where to go and when to go. He's the one that trained the secret service for the king of Egypt. That's how high up the totem pole he was. So he had Pharaoh's ear. And because he was so high up, he was a very wealthy guy. And so he had several slaves, had several people that were serving in his household. And he picks up this young guy and he brings him into his house. And soon Potiphar realized that the Lord was with Joseph giving him success in everything he did. He started watching Joseph, and everything that Joseph put his hands to was blessed. And he started realizing this is, this is a divine thing. 
This is, this is a God given. I don't know about you guys, but I am so amazed. Sometimes we watch The Voice and some other shows, and especially in music shows like that. So often you'll have people that will comment that I'm pretty sure are not following Jesus in their lifestyle. Let's just put it that way, okay? And, and yet they will say, oh, well, that is a gift from God that you have. And it's like, how, how do you know that? Because I'm pretty sure you don't even know God. But anyway, you know, you know what I'm saying? That, that's what Pharaoh's doing here. He's going, Joseph, you, you've got a gift from God. This is, a, this is a divine thing. And it says, this pleased Potiphar, so he made Joseph his personal attendant. So Joseph now just very quickly moves to become the personal aide to the top man of the secret service to the king of Egypt who is the power of the world in that time. Wow. Look what it says. He put him in charge of his entire household and he gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. What does that mean? He gave him all his passwords. I mean, everything. He had keys to everything. He had all the passwords. He could do anything he wanted in Potiphar's household. Everything he owned. Hmm. And then things get a little bit interesting. This, to me, this is why I like to read the Bible, because stories like this, it's like, Wow, these are real people. Because this kind of stuff, this happens. And this really happened here. Look at this. Joseph was very handsome and well-built. Okay? I mean, he was a good-looking guy. And he was ripped. Right? And it says here, And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him. What's that word? Lustfully. Come on, you've got to say it with him. Lustfully. Right? I mean, just... It's kind of a guttural kind of lustfully. She, kept, she began to, mm, baby. You know, I mean, just, she walk, he walked in and, mm, man, look at that man. You know, oh, oh, come on, come on. I mean, that's just, just what was happening, right? And look at what she says to him. I mean, she doesn't even, <laughs> she jumps right to it. Look what she says. Come and sleep with me. She doesn't say, I mean, you're a good looking guy, man. You're, you know, you have, any, you have a girlfriend? You have, you know, no, no, she doesn't even go there. She just goes, you, I want you baby, I want you. Come sleep with me. She makes her intentions very clear. Now, a lot of times we look at this and we go, oh, gross. She's a married woman. She's cheating on her husband. She's doing it with a slave. No, listen, this was a lady who I guarantee you was a beautiful lady. If, if she is married to a guy that is so high up the totem pole in the government of Egypt, I guarantee you this lady was a knockout. She is attracted to this young man and she is seducing him. Very attractive, very interesting woman saying, I can give you anything you want. No one will know. Sleep with me. And the next three words to me are amazing. But G Joseph refused. Wow. Period. Look what he says. Look, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. True. No one here has more authority than I do. True. He has held back nothing from me except you. Because you're his wife. Hello! Right? And then look what he says. 
How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against my master. Wait, no, he doesn't say that. It would be a great sin against God. Joseph shows self-control in the face of incredible temptation. We think, we read this, and it's all black, and, you know, black print on a white page, and it's so neutralized and sterilized, and it's like, oh, yeah, he just said no, you know. How easy it, is it for you to say no to things in your life that tempt you? So let's multiply that by like 100. That's what Joseph was facing. He was being seduced, and he could get away with it. I mean, come on, let's think about it. His life stinks. I mean, he has brothers who hate him, sold him into slavery. He's now a slave. He wasn't a slave before, but now he's a slave, and he's in a situation, and he's, he could move up the ladder very quickly, even more than what he has already. I mean, this lady could make life easy for him. And he says, no, I can't do this because this would be a sin against God. He knew it would negatively affect his relationship with God. Joseph didn't want his actions to mess up things with God. Wow. I got to tell you, I don't think this way enough. And I bet you don't either. How many times do we disobey God because of our lack of control? I mean, we're in a hurry, or, or we give in to pressure, or we submit to our passion, whatever. How many stupid decisions have we made from a lack of control? And we all have them. In 1 Samuel 24, another guy, David, was on the run. Not too long ago, David had been anointed as the next but not yet king of Israel. David had been ser- serving the current king, King Saul. But King Saul, of all things, got jealous of David. And, and you know what happened is David was just simply serving his king. His king would, <laughs> would say, go out and fight the Philistines. And David would go out and fight the Philistines. And just like Joseph, David's life was blessed by God. And David severely destroys the enemy. And so people start making up songs. It'd be like, you know, posting on Instagram, posting on Facebook. They they were really excited about what David was doing. And they were saying, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul would hear these songs, these words being said in got under his skin a little bit. Who does this young punk think he is? Moving in on my territory, on my crown, my throne. I'm going to have to eliminate this threat. So much so that he got to the point where he was so jealous of David, when David was in his throne room, he chucked a spear at David. The spear stuck in the wall. It missed. David ducked, and it did the Matrix thing, and it went right past him, right? And it stuck in the wall. In fact, he did it twice. I don't know about you, but the first time I'd already been gone. But man, he did it twice. And David said, I'm gone. I'm out of here. I'm on the run. And so he's on the run. Running from King Saul. Jealousy overwhelmed his senses and Saul begins 
to hunt him down, to kill David. So David escapes to the cave of Adullam. Soon, his brothers and all his other relatives join him there. Now, don't don't miss this. This was not a family reunion. This was not like, hey, let's come together and have a barbecue, right? No, 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 no. David is on on the run. His life is being threatened, and he knows that Saul is trying to hunt him down. And now his family come to join him. And then it says, then others began coming until David was the captain of about 400 men. Let me tell you something. When God has a calling on your life, there's no way you're going to avoid leading people. God will make sure somewhere, some way, you will continue to lead if you're supposed to lead. And that was David. 400 men. So David and his men voluntarily started doing some things. One of the things that they did is the people that lived in this village of Keilah needed some support. The Philistines were attacking them and attacking their flocks and their village. And so David hated the Philistines. We already know that. And so he, would, he and his men would go and fight and protect the people of Keilah. And you'd think that the people of Keilah would be so thankful and so grateful for what David did. No, not at all. The people told King, where David, where King Saul where David was hiding. They gave him up. They threw him under the bus. So David and his men left Keilah and now stayed in the hill country of Ziph. Saul hunted him, notice this, day after day, after day, after day, after day. Saul was determined, I'm going to kill this guy. But God didn't let Saul find him. In fact, in one scripture it says that, that David would go over one mountain and Saul would, would be brought behind him on the same mountain coming over as they were going up. Like following him that close. David was on the run. says, the men of Zith went to Saul and Gibeah and betrayed David to him. Here it is again. When David heard that Saul and his men were searching for him, he went even farther into the wilderness and he remained there in the wilderness of Mon. But Saul kept after him. David then went to live in the strongholds of En Gedi. That first picture that you saw of the, the ravine, that was literally the, a picture of En Gedi. Ingedi is an area that is laced with steep ravines and honeycombed with caverns everywhere. Ingedi is a perfect hideout. If you are on the run for your life, it is a perfect place to hide. David was smart. Take a look at 1 Samuel 24.1. Saul was told that David had gone into the wilderness of Ingedi. So here comes Saul. Saul chose 3,000 elite Troops, Navy SEALs, he's bringing them this time. This is Bravo team coming in, right? From all Israel, they went to search for David and his men at the place where the road passes some sheepfolds. I don't know if you realize what a sheepfold is, just a pen, like where shepherds would keep their sheep overnight kind of thing, at at a place, and we don't know where this is at, but they obviously knew, it was in their culture, they knew where, at the place where the road passes sheepfolds. Don't miss this. This is really good. It shows us that these were true humans. You ever watch movies and and you think, wow, they just keep going, keep going, keep going. When do they ever go to the bathroom? You ever do that? 
I do that a lot. And like in Marvel movies and stuff, all these action, like, do these people go to the bathroom? Do they, do they ever have to? Because they never stop to go to the bathroom. They eat, but they never go to the bathroom. You know, anyway, sorry, that's just my mind going, okay? This is a story. I love this part of the story. It says, at the road where it passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to, guess what? Relieve himself. Don't you love that? I do. He was real. He was real. But David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Right? I mean, think about it. Come on. This couldn't have been made up any better. I mean, if this is a screenwriter's dream, right? (laughs) David and his now 600, it's grown, now 600 men. This is a big cave. David and his 600 men are far back in the very cave that King Saul chooses to be his personal porta potty. So, so, so Saul and all his men, 3,000 Navy SEALs, Bravo team, all the animals, all the arsenal, it comes to a stop, you know, they're cruising along, and Saul's like, wow, I had too many burritos today, right? And he says, oh, so they all stop. Right? Some of us got that. So we all stop. And then Saul goes, give me a minute. And I, I can just imagine all the soldiers going, couldn't you have done that before we left? Really? Here we are out. Okay, go ahead. So, I mean, nobody's going to guard him. They're in the middle of nowhere. And Saul just kind of walks up and goes into this cave, something like that, goes into this cave. As he's entering the cave, he can't really see all that well because he's been outside with the sun, right? You know how your eyes have to adjust to the darkness. So he's walking in, and I don't know what his routine is, but he made, you know, maybe want to face the entrance to the cave because it's light out there. I wouldn't want to face the darkness. And so I can just imagine he's turning and he's facing, and, and sorry, but he squats or something. I don't know what he does, but he's on his haunches and he's, He's doing his business, and he pulls out the newspaper or whatever, you know, and he's just doing his business. And in the back of the cave, their eyes are adjusted to the darkness. (laughs) Come on, think about this. And they see this guy walk into the cave, and they realize he's... He's got a crown. Is that? (gasps) That's Saul. David, that's Saul. Do you you see? I see him. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? This is is your chance. What's he doing? Oh, man. What's he doing? (laughs) What's he doing? I don't know. You know, I'm just... Right? Okay. And look at, look at what happens. Eyes watching from the darkness. Now's your opportunity. His men are whispering to him. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will certainly, look at this, certainly put your enemy into your power to do as you wish. Do you notice something in this, this text right here? It's, it's double quotes. It's got single quotes on that. I will certainly put your enemy into your power. Most researchers believe these are the kinds of things that David has said to his men. There'll be a day when I'm king. 
The day is coming. I am anointed king. I know I'm not king now, and we are living in caves, and we are on the run for our life, but there's a day when I will be king, and God will establish me as king. And they're saying, ha, today is the day, David. All that you've been telling us, all this, we thought, yeah, 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 yeah. But now we're seeing this is a God thing. There's, there's no bloodshed. Think about it. No bloodshed. You just got to take out the king. We don't have to fight his troops. I mean, come on. Like you did with Goliath. Just take his head off, hold it up, walk out of the cave, and say, I'm king. Bow down. And, he said, and they were probably telling him, and they will do it. No bloodshed. Because they don't like the guy anyway. He's crazy. He's a madman. Just do it. It's your chance. Just do it. So, it says, David crept forward and cut off. Yes, he's going to do it. Can you I mean, just think, can think about his soldiers? I mean, his men in the back, they're going, <laughs> I mean, think, they could go home. We don't have to be on the run anymore. We could go home. This is it. We can go home. He's going to become king. I'm going to be a second. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Shut up. You know, kind of thing, right? I mean, they're all competing for, they, and he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's sneaking up. He's doing that stomach crawl thing. Look at he's doing it. And he cuts off a piece of his robe. Wait, what? So David crept forward, cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. He did what? It was right there. I mean, he was, he was right there. Saul didn't even know he was there. He was supposed to kill Saul. This was his chance. Saul was all exposed and vulnerable. And all he does is cut off a piece of his robe? David refused to kill Saul, even when he had a golden opportunity to do it. And look at what he says to his men. The Lord forbid that I should do this to the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. What is he thinking? He's telling you what he's thinking. Look at how many times does he say the word Lord Who's he focused on? God. He's saying, I can't do this. This is not the way God would want me to take the throne. I mean, come on. Can you imagine telling the grandkids, hey, Grandpa David, how did you become king? Well, I um, took the head off the king. Wow, you're such a soldier. Wow, such a warrior, a brave guy. Where did it happen? Well, it was in a cave. In a cave, it must have been a great hand-to-hand -hand combat fight. Well, no, not really. Well, what happened? He, he was going to the bathroom, and I took off his head. David knew this was not right. David didn't want his actions to mess up things with God. David knew that if, that if God had put Saul in the king position, 
that it was God's responsibility to remove Saul from the king's position. It was not David's responsibility. Listen to me. This is talking to somebody. I felt it all week. There is somebody who's dealing with somebody, and maybe it's at work or school, wherever, and you, you have an opportunity to do something against a person, and God is talking to you about vengeance is his, not yours. David knew that. David knew this is not my responsibility. God is in control. But his men were angry. Wouldn't you be angry? <laughs> Come on, you've been telling us this for six months, dude. You, and now you don't even do anything? You cut off his robe? Huh, what was that? Oh, great, mighty David, right? Well, get out of the way, we're gonna do it. I mean, he crawled back, obviously. He crawled back and they go, what are you doing? He goes, well, I got his robe. It's like, get out of the way. I mean, one of these guys are probably, shh, I love making that sound. It's like the sword sound, you know, shh, let me, let me go kill him. I'll kill him for you. I'll say it's you that did it. Nobody will ever know the difference. Just let me do it because I don't like the guy either. No, 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 I'll go. Okay, we'll both go. You hit him from the left side, I'll hit him from the right, and it, it's done. And look what happens here. It says, David restrained, wait, 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 what is that? Self-control. And now he's pushing that self-control on his men. David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. How do you think he, it doesn't say anything about it, but here's my imagination. How do you think he restrained his men? Do you think he goes, oh, no, no, boys, don't do that. No, these were, these were really bad dudes. And I'm sure they already had weapons ready to go. And David is like, okay, listen, here's the deal. You want him? You go through me. Who's up first? Let's go. It's like, no, this isn't going to happen this way. We're following God. We're not following our passion. We're not following how we would like things to go. We are under control because we're following God. Hmm. David trusted that God was in control. David trusted that when God was ready, Saul would be out of the way. Listen, God doesn't need your help to make his plan work. Friends, we, we don't think this way. We don't live this way enough. How many times do we disobey God because of our lack of control? We give in to pressure. We give in to our passions. How many stupid decisions have we made because of a lack of control? So we looked at two Old Testament examples of not wanting to have their actions affect their relationship with God. But now I want to quickly, I want us to jump to 1 Corinthians 8 in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul now is concerned not so much about his relationship with God and how his actions are going to affect his relationship with God, but the Apostle Paul, a guy that I love studying, he is concerned about how his actions are affecting people around him. Take a look, 1 Corinthians 8, 13. I like to call this Paul's vegetarian vegan verse. Ready? Here we go. If what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Don't miss that last part. I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. What is this all about? This is not a vegan vegetarian verse. Okay, I'm just making that up. That, um, this is Paul writing about self-control. 
If you back up in 1 Corinthians 8, and I'm not going to spend the time to look through the whole chapter. You can do that on your own. But 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, look at what Paul writes to the Jesus followers in the city of Corinth. Look what he says. What about eating meat that has been offered to idols? You say, what in the world does it have to do with us today? Really not anything other than the principle. In their Gentile area of the Mediterranean rim where Paul was planting churches, pagan idol worship was prevalent, and it included animal sacrifices to idols in worship. And as an income source, the pagan temples would sell the leftover meat to anyone who wanted to buy it. So that was the meat market, right? They didn't run to the grocery store like we do and get it all packaged up. They didn't run to the butcher. People of that day would run to the idol, the pagan idol temple to buy meat. Got to have a barbecue. Got to go to the temple and buy my meat. And so that's what they did. The church in Corinth that Paul started and is trying to maintain and help and grow and develop, the church in Corinth, it was filled with people of all kinds of different backgrounds. Some were kosher Jews. Anybody know what a kosher Jew is? I mean, just orthodox, man. Anybody ever been to the Ralph store in La Jolla? They have like the biggest kosher Jewish section I've ever seen in a grocery store. Just go someday. Just go, go see it. It's amazing. I didn't even know it existed, right? And, and th- these are kosher Jews, man, orthodox. And they only eat certain things and they only do certain things at certain times on certain days and all this. And then there were other people in the church. Some were former idol worshipers. And so they were coming out of the pagan world. They knew nothing of Jewish laws and all of that kind of, they just, they heard about Jesus. Wow. I mean, think about it. We kind of have it in our day. We have some people that are churched people and some people that are not churched people. And so you're mixing the two together and that's what was going on in the city of Corinth. But all were Jesus followers now. All of them together. Even though these differences, they were all together. And some of the Jesus followers believed the freedom that Jesus gave applied to every area of their lives, including eating anything. You know, we had all of these kosher laws before, but Jesus has set us free from that. And we we can let that go. We can eat anything because Paul and others, Peter and others, they're telling us, hey, we can eat anything. Peter had this vision thing of a sheet and all these animals and God said, eat. And Peter's like, no, 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 I'm a kosher Jew. And God goes, yeah, but you're supposed to worship and do what I tell you to do because that's what kosher Jews do. So you need to eat the food. Peter's like, okay, I see what you're saying. Everything is okay. This is freedom. It's permissible. Hmm. But other followers had a hard time with it. Ironically, it was the people who had come out of the pagan idol-worshiping world. They, they had a hard time with it. It was like, do you know where that meat is from? It's from a pagan temple. That was the lifestyle that I came out of. And it's like, I have a hard time with you eating that. I'm not going to come to your house for the barbecue if that's the kind of meat that you're serving. Huh. So Paul gives some instruction. 1 Corinthians 8 9, you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others to stumble. If what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. See, do you get it? Paul is already saying, I can eat meat. 
I'm a, I was a kosher Jew, but now there's freedom in Christ. I can eat meat. I can eat meat all day long. Bring on the T-bones, right? And Paul's saying, but I'm going to give it all up. If it's going to offend you, if it's going to make you stumble, if it's going to cause you to walk away from the church or walk away from God, I'm not going to do it anymore. I will give it up. I will be a vegetarian. I will give up meat if I have to because, look what he says, I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. So imagine you live in the first century, first century Corinth, and you're going to have some friends over for a barbecue. You're going to grill up some steaks. I mean, it's going to be a good day, right? But the only place you can buy the meat is in the back of the pagan temple. So you, you see no problem with it. I mean, we're free in Christ. Come on, there's freedom. And so we, I mean, the Apostle Paul said there's freedom. I mean, he lives in freedom. I saw him eat meat the other day. So I'm, we're going to go have steaks. So I go and I purchase my meat. And, and while in the marketplace, I run into a church friend. Hey, how's it going? Love, love, love. You know, kind of thing. And then they notice as you're hugging them, you have something wrapped in butcher paper. They go, ha ha. You've been to the temple and you bought meat at the temple. What, what, what are you doing? Well, we're having a dinner. We're having church friends over. You're invited. Remember the invite? I sent you a text. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But you're going you're gonna to serve this meat at that party? Mm-hmm. Do you know where that meat came from? Yeah, it's at the temple. Yeah, but do you know where it came from first? Well, yeah, okay, but, you know, it's just meat. No, it's not just meat. It was an animal that was sacrificed to a pagan god, and it was sliced off of that animal, and that's what they're serving, or they're they're selling, rather, now at the temple. And that's what you just bought, and that's what you're going to be serving at your party. It's wrong for Jesus' followers to do what you're doing. You're holding that wrapped meat, and you're being told right now in the marketplace, what you're doing is wrong. How can you do this? I, I like meat. I, I, I don't have any problem. I, I don't see any problem in this. And the other guy's going, yeah, but I do. So how can you and I be on the same page? How can you call yourself a Christian? And I'm saying, well, how can you call yourself a Christian? Because there's freedom in Christ. And you kind of have this little disagreement. Right there in the marketplace, and the guy leaves. As he's leaving, you have another church friend that comes walking up, and he's new to the church. He's a, a former idol worshiper that was converted to Christ. He's come to Christ. He knows Christ. He's brand new, month old in the church, follower of Christ. And you've been mentoring him, actually. You've been, hey, man, let's go to Starbucks. And, you know, you've been doing this kind of thing. And he overhears your conversation. You didn't even know he was there. And he overheard this little disagreement going on with this other church person. And he comes over to you and he says, dude, why would I want to follow Jesus if Jesus' followers are like that? All they do is judge and condemn. What are they saying about me? Because I'm all new to this, and I don't know all your talk and all of this. What are they saying about me? Are they judging me and condemning me? Why would I want to follow Jesus if this is the way you guys act? 
that is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 8. But also, in Romans 14, can you imagine? Same problem, different church. Same issue, different people living in Rome. Look what Paul says. It gets better. One person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Here it is. Look at this. Don't miss this. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble. Bing, 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 bing. Do you know what that is? Decide to live in such a way. Do you know what that is? Self-control. Self-control. Deciding to live a certain way. Self-control. I don't have time to go into it, but you know what Paul writes later? He says, when I'm with the Greeks, I live like a Greek. When I'm with the Jews, I live like a Jew. You know what he's saying? I gotta enjoy the Brussels sprouts with the Jews, but over here, the Greeks, whoo, bring on the prime rib, baby. Right? That's what he's saying. He says, I, I, I adjust my lifestyle through self-control. I decide to live a way to not cause someone to stumble spiritually. Paul wraps it off. Look at this. I know and am convinced that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it's wrong, then for that person, it's wrong. If another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin someone who, for whom Christ died. Man, that's good. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all foods are acceptable, but it is wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble. Here it is. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You know what that is? Self-control. Self-control. Get it down. Self-control is limiting what I do so I don't mess up my relationship with God or others. Limiting what I do so I don't mess up my relationship with God or others. So here we are at the end. We're done. And you may be sitting there thinking, oh, that's cool, Bart. That was a good message. Self-control. I'm glad you shared it because there are probably people in the room that need to hear it. But not me because I've kind of got this down. I don't really have anything in my life that I need to worry about. I'm good. I'm ready for Lolita's. Let's go get some Mexican food. I'm good. Hate to tell you, but Paul says you're not. Fact. Before you think this doesn't apply to you, it's interesting that Paul tells his protege, Titus, that everyone needs to learn self-control. Take a look at what he tells Titus. 
Teach the older men, I'm not going to ask you for a show of hands, but some of us are older men, okay, and getting older. Teach the older men to be worthy of respect. Look at this. Self-control. Wait, wait, wait. Teach the older men. You mean we don't already have it automatically? (laughs) Wow. If you think you have it automatically, you have got a lot to learn. Teach. That's what I'm doing today. Teach you. Teaching you. Teaching me. Teach the older men to be worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine. Um, Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, there it is again, and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, blah, blah, blah. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. So let's see, let's get this right. Teach the older men and also encourage the younger men self-control, right? Let the older women, he said, ah, if we're an older woman, we don't have to be taught self-control because it doesn't really say that. Yeah, but it says that you're supposed to teach the younger women self-control. So how are you going to teach something that you don't have in your own life? Everybody follow me? So what Paul is saying is every generation needs to develop self-control, and we need that. In our culture right now, today, 2019, more than ever Self-control. Self-control with my words, self-control with my temper, self-control with my thoughts, self-control with my passions. But here's the the difficulty, is that self-control is a paradox. I don't know if you know what that means. It's it's, it's something that kind of works against itself. We, because we can't control ourselves, right? Self-control is controlling yourself, but can you control yourself? How good are you at that? Well, certain areas, yeah, no problem, right? But then there's that one or two or three areas. And so I need God to take control. See, listen, self-control isn't controlling yourself. Biblical self-control is asking God to help you in the control of yourself. Everybody follow me on that? And that's what these guys knew. That's what Paul knew. That's what Joseph knew. That's what David knew. We could go right through the Bible listing all kinds of different characters. It's hard for us, the self-control thing. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit working hard to produce self-control in us. I'm so glad Paul didn't leave it off the list. I'm so glad he included it on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at it again. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So here's the question. Where do you need self-control? Where do you need it? Wherever you need it, it's where God wants to give it. In fact, look at this. These two passages I added in literally yesterday because God was speaking to me about Philippians 2 and Ephesians 4. Look at what it says. God is working in you. Paul is writing this. Same guy, Apostle Paul. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. 
You know what he's saying? God will give you self-control. He will help you with this. He will help you be in control so that you don't mess up your relationships in your life. So where do you need self-control? Listen, it's time that you throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit renew your thoughts and renew your attitudes. Today's the day. Let the Holy Spirit start working self-control in your life today. Today's the day.